welcome to the Design Thinking Roundtable podcast, which explores various aspects of design and how it can create, change, and social impact. My name is Anne Fayard, Associate Professor at New York University. I'm an ethnographer who researches, teaches, and practices human-centered design with a focus on social innovation and collaboration. Claire Brass is a designer, innovator, and educator with a focus on sustainability and circular economy, connecting design thinking with business strategy. With nearly 20 years' experience as a design practitioner, she became head of sustainability at Design Council and later founded and directed Seed Foundation, exploring design-led entrepreneurial opportunities from social and or environmental challenges. She set up and led Sustain RCA at the RCA, where she was also leader of sustainability and enterprise for innovation design engineering together with Imperial College. She currently is co-director of Department 22, an innovation consultancy for circular economy with a focus on the food sector. She uses a variety of design methods, as well as a bit of her own creative spark, to help businesses and individuals create and develop great ideas and strategies to drive transition to a better world. She has been a trustee of a London Community Resource Network and a mentor for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. She has also worked for a variety of global industries across all fields, including Nissan, M&S, McDonald's, Hitachi, Coca-Cola, London Olympics, and more. Claire is a keen environmentalist and food grower and has developed commercial and entrepreneurial projects around environmental and welfare impacts. Claire, welcome to the Design Thinking Roundtable. Thank you for joining us. I give the official bio. Can you tell me a bit more about your journey? What is your background and how did you get interested in sustainable design and circular economy? So I started my professional life in Milan And I had a design studio for many years, but I had this really weird thing. So the more successful I became as a designer, the more uncomfortable I became. And I think the reason was that um, I've always had a bit of a thing about waste. And I realized that the, the more money I made as the designer, the more waste I was basically generating. So I got to a point where I just couldn't be a part of it anymore. It's a bit like, you know, design has always been associated with aesthetics really with beautiful objects and there's a great irony in that because you know the more I was working the bigger the landfill pile which is you know behind the scenes it's really a really ugly thing and so I just couldn't do it anymore and eventually I thought a lot about it and realized after many years that the only way I could go on being a designer and not kind of have this guilty feeling every time I was designing something was to use my design skills to help me earn a living by addressing, by designing for social and environmental challenges. And so I did a, a short master's course at the Politecnico di Milano. And um, as a result of that, I had to do, uh, set up a, a test business. So my, you know, my whole hypothesis, I had to, had to test it. Can I make a living out of being a designer and addressing a social environmental problem. And the problem that I decided to tackle was a problem about dog poo, because I, I, I found out that when I did a bit of research that it was the most complained about problem in Milan City Council. So I thought, okay, if I can make money out of dog shit, I can make money out of anything. So I did, um, I got together with uh, an engineer also on the course, and we did this dog shit project, and we won the best, we were awarded for the best enterprise of the cohort. And we got offered money and a place in an incubator. 
But then I realised that I didn't really want to spend the next five years of my life developing a business about the kind of problem which wasn't really what the kind of problem I wanted to be thinking about. So I was more interested in proper serious environmental stuff. So I turned it all down and moved to London because I did think that there was something in this. I thought that designers are being taught the wrong stuff. You know, we're still training designers to design objects and things. Uh, we're not really training designers to think about problems, that those, those kind of problems, and we're not training them to think in systems at all. So even though designers are pretty good at thinking in systems, it's kind of not part of the core teaching of most design courses. So I came back to the UK and shut my studio in Milan, took up a job at the Design Council and became where I became head of sustainability. And that was kind of my transition between b- being a designer of stuff and being a designer of non-stuff, if you like. And following the Design Council, which didn't really work out, I mean, it was really a great experience, but it didn't really do what I really wanted to do, which was to get to the core of this educational issue. When I left the Design Council, I set up an organisation called Seed Foundation, which was really about exploring more deeply uh, the skills that designers have that they can apply to this kind of social and environmental entrepreneurial thinking. And with Seed Foundation, we did a number of projects. They all started as funded research projects, and then we were looking for the business opportunities within. The two most significant ones probably were uh, one called Food Loop, which we did. It uh, was funded by DEFRA, which is Department for the Environment in the UK. And it was in collaboration with the London Borough of Camden. Uh, and Food Loop looked into how... It was really about behaviour change, actually. It was really about how can we increase the take-up of... people separating their food waste and handing it over and the 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 idea behind that was if you can visualize people could visualize not only the food waste but the value of that food waste to them personally then they would be more likely to separate it and 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 give it give it handed over and we wanted to keep that value as close as possible to source so we wanted the people who were creating that value to benefit from it and the project took part we set up a pilot on, on on a housing estate in King's Cross, a very tough housing estate, and worked, co-designed with the residents, a group of residents from the estate. And then as a result, we kind of set up the projects and had a better idea of how to do it and how to gain participation. And then there was another project we did about uh, about water, how to encourage people to use water more wisely uh, and more responsibly. And so th- those were the kind of projects we were doing in Seed Foundation. Then I, I ended up working at the Royal College of Arts, which I, I won't talk too much about, but it was a really fascinating way of balancing kind of... I, I learned as much from my students as I was learning doing the job, and so it was a very reciprocal exchange of ideas and knowledge. Uh, my current role is as a co-director of a consulting organisation called Department 22 and it's about ideas for the 22nd century and Department 22 is we are um, helping organisations usually big organisations particularly retailers um, look at how they can shift to a circular economy and most of our clients work in the food sector so we're quite specialised in food just I think looking back over my years of work I did realise at a certain point that pretty much well most of the work I had done somehow or other was connected with food. And so it made sense to specialise in that. So that's uh, that's Department 22. And the most recent thing that's happened with Department 22 is since the um, 
pandemic, we decided to try out some of the ideas that we've had and some of the things that we know are happening in the world and the changes, implementing, acting according to some of the changes we know are happening already and have been exacerbated by the pandemic. And and so we set up a startup this year and we're now kind of fully looking for ways of rolling it out and, and developing it. So it's quite exciting to be back on the in the driving seat of projects of, of my own, if you like. Thank you for sharing your journey. It is inspiring to hear how you decided to change your career in order to be closer to your values. It reminds me of a TED talk you did at the RCA, where you talked about designing with values. Can you tell me a bit more about the role of values in your work? When I was working all this out, I think what I realized was that the problem I had with my professional life is that it clashed with my personal values. That was the main problem. So I, as I said earlier, I've, I've always had a real bee in my bonnet about waste. I've always hated waste. And there I was as a, as a designer professionally being paid to do something that fundamentally I was disapproved of myself. I, I had a real inner conflict. And when I worked that out, then I, I kind of made it made everything fall into place because I realized why I wasn't really all that um, satisfied, if you like, with what I was doing. And because I was, you know, I was earning a lot of money and I was quite successful and, but I didn't, wasn't really very happy with that. And I, I've thought a lot since then about how do you know what your values are? Because it's something that in education, we tend to, we tend to be forced away from our values. So you grow up and you develop values for yourself and then you go into education and and work and at that point you kind of have to take on another you have to dump your own personal values and take on a whole another set and that happens without you being aware of it or or even thinking about it so designing with values for me you know it's never too late to start and it's all about asking yourself and really identifying what your own values are so that you can then move in a direction which will not clash with your own deeply founded beliefs. What is the role of design in creating sustainable solutions? How does it connect with circular economy thinking? I did used to worry about this in the beginning quite a lot. I used to, to worry, how am I going to do this? I don't really know how to do this, right? I'm a product designer by training. So how am I going to be a designer and not design stuff? And it is, it is difficult because... Quite often, I do find myself kind of reverting to that habit of designing things, right? But actually, I realise that design is not really about what profession you're in. So if you stop worrying for a minute about, you know, what it is that you you do and think more about what it is that you feel and you are, then actually all of the skills, and maybe it's about that, maybe it's about focusing on what you're good at and seeing how can you use those skills in a different way than you've been used to using them. For me, that was a bit of a light bulb moment. And when you look at the skills that are needed to be a good designer, the same skills are also really useful in thinking about how you apply, you know, your skills to, to circularity or to circular design. I have developed kind of a process and that process does pick up on all of the things that design is really good at. So things like identifying the right problem, Obviously, designers are really good at solving problems and doing research around issues so that they can do exactly that, exactly the same thing. If you're working towards um, a circ towards a circularity brief, 
you know, you have to identify the right problem. First of all, what area do you want to explore? And the way I look at this is if you imagine the world to be kind of a cake divided up into lots of different environmental or social challenges, you could you could use the sustainable development goals as a very nice example because they're laid out in a circle already. So just pick the one that you feel most connected with and then, you know, research it and research it and look for, well, you need to look for three things. Where's the biggest problem? Where's the biggest opportunity? And where's the biggest design opportunity? Because they, they, they all have to be ticks in the boxes. Once you've done that, you need to just zoom really, really in and into that problem because you can't take on the whole piece. You have to take on a tiny bit of a tiny bit of one of those segments. So I think that's also part of a, a natural part of a designer's skill is knowing what to throw out. You know, it's that process of elimination until you're left with the one thing that is right and works and you know when you've got it right. Second thing is listen to as many people who know about, who are involved in that issue as possible. So again, very common practice in design is talking to your stakeholders, this is just no different at all. As with any design project, sometimes one person will say one thing that is the thing which makes your project, you know, a great project. It's just listening and listening out for those nuggets, those nuggets of knowledge or insights, as we call them, that will make a great project. So that's the second one. And another really important one, and I think perhaps this is... Uh, something we can all do because we're good at visualising, but I think we need to enhance and practice this skill, is zooming in and out of your problem. So you need to, when you've zoomed in, you also need to be able to zoom back out again and look at your problem within the context of systems. And you need to understand the systems because as designers, we tend to love finding solutions, you know, answering the question. But if you do that too quickly without really having understood the context, sometimes usually you're just shifting the problem somewhere else. The zooming out is, you know, looking at the whole systems, but the zooming in is really understanding what do you want people to do differently? So that is um, absolutely critical. Visualisation, obviously, that's exactly the same. It's the more you can visualise things, the more you can explain a future vision to people that you need to understand what your project, what your idea is all about. I think a very interesting one, I Personally, I think this is really important. I mean, circular economy has the word economy in it. So this is not just about creating lovely ideas. They have to be ideas that work within a, um, an economic framework in, in one way or the other. So someone said this to me on my on my food loop journey. They asked me, you know, who owns the pain? And that was a really brilliant question because um, who owns the pain means... Uh, every problem has a cost attached to it, but can you identify who's paying that cost? Who's who's currently paying the bill? And can you design a solution that makes it cheaper for them? So who owns the pain in any uh, entrepreneurial solution is really, really important. And that's not the kind of thing that you would naturally be trained uh, for, which perhaps brings me to a, the, the point that collaboration is critical like designers are great at lots of things but not at everything and collaborating with other people who know how to do all the other things that we can't do is, is really important and I think that again traditionally designers have been a little bit like they like the, the design hero image and if you're going to do this you have to assume a certain humility and 
This is not about you as the, de the designer. It's you about being part of the puzzle for making things work differently. Then there's prototyping. So, you know, the ability to test and prototype is is actually often what does make you different as a designer from anyone else trying to do the same thing. Lots of people are trying to do this, but you have the advantages that you know how to try things out with people. Whatever you do, people have to find it better in some way. And it could be, uh, it could be cheaper, but it, not necessarily. It's got to be easier to use and faster, possibly, uh, but definitely more fun. You know, this aspect of the joy of, of life is, for me, is really, really important. So those are my kind of tips. I love your point about collaboration and being humble and the shifting role of a designer from being a hero to a facilitator and co-designer. I would like to ask you about a project you and your colleagues at Department 22 have been busy setting up during the COVID downtime, Bulkify, which is a new startup that aims to make it cheaper and easier for people to access a delicious, independently produced, sustainable and healthy food. When I first read about Bulkify, I was very excited by the idea, as well as by the process, which seems to me um, to be a perfect example of rapid live prototyping. Can you tell me a bit more about Bulkify and the process you followed? Everyone wants to eat more, better food, but buying good food is often very expensive and 60% of people are put off from the idea of um, eating, buying good food because of the price difference. So Bulkify is, uh, is a way of allowing everyone to eat better food without paying a fortune. Bulkify started because, well, it was, it was triggered by the pandemic, but it was actually based on something that we used to do anyway for, for many years, just in the office ourselves. So we had a network of small food producers, basically, really around us. But we could often only buy in bulk from them. So you, you can't just go and buy one thing. You have to buy a case. So we used to buy cases of stuff that you couldn't really buy in the shops. And then we would split those things in the office. So everyone would take one or two pieces and then... Then it began to go beyond our own office and we used to share with other people on the floor. When, we, when the pandemic started and we began thinking, you know, which of our many ideas are we going to try? This was the one that we thought had the most resonance with us. And it kind of also, as it happens, it resonated very strongly with this very um, reinforced idea of community, which was emerging very quickly at the beginning of the pandemic. So... We had, we had to try it out. We had to understand, is this the kind of thing that you can get other people to do? Because obviously bulk, bulk buying or group buying exists as a phenomenon, but it is very difficult for the person who organises it. You need one person to organise and send out the, the offer to a group of people who have to be members. And then, uh, and then there's a point you order everything and then everyone has to come and take their various bits. And it, it's a lot of work. If you're the administrator, it's a lot of work. Then you've got to sort out the payment as well. So when we started out, we thought, can, can we do this? Will people do it? And can we take the pain away from it? Can we make it easier and sort of seamless? And maybe you don't even need to be in a group to do this, which is how it's, you know, maybe the group is what is for, is the bit we do for you. So I gathered people who I know who live quite close to me and started putting together shopping lists of things in the beginning, things that you couldn't find in the shops, which was interesting because you couldn't find flour in the UK, you couldn't find yeast, but you could find it. It's not that there was no flour. It was that there was no flour in one kilo bags. There was plenty of flour in the, in the wholesalers that was being normally sent to the pizzeria or to the restaurants and now was kind of stuck in a warehouse somewhere. So 
we realised that that was just the problem of distribution. So that was the first thing we did was we got hold of products which were hard to find in the shops and we disseminated them amongst our groups. And we tested this stuff with really, really simple tools because we were just we just needed to try it out without making any kind of investment. So we did it entirely on Google Sheets, which, you know, actually you can do a lot with a Google Sheet, quite incredible. Um, and we had three groups up and running in different parts of London. And um, we were offering, gradually every week we were testing different things. So in the beginning we were testing these staple products and then we moved on to... Uh, other kinds of products and tested whether you know whether what people were really interested in buying we tested the price threshold and we tested the group thinking and we enabled people to see who else in the group was ordering what so they could adhere to their purchases and they could see when the case was full uh, and so every every time we put out an order we were testing a different hypothesis and that was really great because we we really ended up at the end of 3 months with a very clear picture of what we what what the market was interested in. And then we began to dig deeper in how to do it. We are literally this week uh, about to launch the, fir- the very first version of an app. So we, were, we won a, uh, an award in November from the European Space Agency, bizarrely. Yeah, and that was really exciting. That was a bit of a turning point for us. And the, 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 the turning point was that um, I, we did many experiments in this time to see, you know, try different things. And one of the things we did was put an, a, a small announcement on a, one of the local social networks, sort of a hyper-local group. And it basically said, "Does anyone? I'm buying olive oil. Does anyone want to buy olive oil with me so we can get it in a bulk price? And I had an enormous, I think we multiplied our normal sales turnover for a week by 10. I mean, we had 10 times as many requests. It was incredible. And so then we realised that instead of offering many products to a small group of people, we could capture entire neighbourhoods and offer one product at a time. And what we're doing now is developing the tech so that we can cluster people into smaller groups. And so those smaller groups mean you are connected. You don't know who's on your order, but we know that you have ordered the same thing with nine other people who live very close to you. And so that's that's why Bulkify is really a tech logistics platform and, and not so much of a specifically a food platform. Like if we can make it work for food, we can basically make it work for anything. So we're just launching the app and we're going to be testing that for the next uh, six weeks and we're now at a point where we're so confident about how this works and how to do it that we're ready to raise funding to really invest in, you know, to push that. The tech right now is very, very basic. So we're ready to, you know, develop it much further. We're, we just need to test what we have to make sure that everything is running smoothly. And then we'll start building the features we need into it. So it's really exciting. And it is absolutely a project that is sort of live testing all the way through. So it's a perfect example of you know, design methodology in practice. So it seems you could sell anything on Belkify. The big challenge, and we are kind of on this sort of knife edge, and it's very difficult when you're looking to, you know, to, to, to scale something. Of course, there's a huge opportunity here. You could just sell anything on Belkify, right? And what is very hard for us is that we started this business uh, with and it's specifically about supporting small producers and agroecological approaches to farming, so regenerative farming methods. You know, the last thing we want to do is to enable anyone to go out and buy mass-produced crap, if you like, and, and that's the risk. So how do you 
hold on to those ethical qualities of your and your values, your, your deepest values when you're starting a business and, and balance that with the requirements of investors and uh, shareholders. The model for creating, building, ex- uh, scaling up and then selling businesses is deeply capitalist in its structure. And it is really a challenge to understand how do you maintain values in a system that is actually rewarding you for doing the opposite of what you really would like to be doing. So earlier you shared a lot of tips about designing for sustainability and how to leverage design skills. As I'm listening to you talking about Bulkify and the the need to take a system lens, I wonder if there are any other elements that one needs to keep in mind when designing for sustainability and the circular economy. There is one really, really critical component which does not exist if you're a regular, let's say, product designer. And that is we do not consider nature as being a stakeholder. And so I think it's really important when you're putting together and you're thinking about your design brief and you're thinking about stakeholders to always have that voice of, you know, what would nature say if you did this? And we don't do that, and it's really important, and it's difficult to do it when you're working with um, a commercial client because that doesn't fit into their, again, into their economic model. But it is a really important question. And some businesses, there's one in particular in the UK called River Simple, and they are creating hydrogen vehicles but not selling them. They're creating a vehicle that you then lease. It's a very interesting company, and they have got around this problem by having a series of people on their advisory board, each of whom represents a different aspect of the sustainability challenge. So they have kind of the voice for nature and the voice for uh, humanity and the voice for water, for example. And so each of these things is represented by an expert who can then reflect, help them reflect on the impacts of their decisions. I love this idea of giving voice to nature or to any silent stakeholder. You know, that has to be part of your brief. Otherwise, it's so easy to, to forget it. The way that all began for me was we did a project many years ago uh, with students at the Royal College of Art, and the client of the project was... Well, there were two clients, but one was a big meat producer and the other one was McDonald's. And the project was all about chicken, broiler chicken. And it was actually the most fascinating project I think I'd ever done. And one of the things that we did right in the beginning when we were setting up the project is we, when we created the user journeys or or the groups of students working on the project were creating user journeys, we asked them to think about three different user journeys. One was the farmer's perspective, which we also really don't consider when you're, you know, the the, the brief here was, can can we make the life of broiler chickens better and reduce the environmental and the the environmental impacts of chicken farming, but also can we make life more bearable as a, as, a, as a chicken in the process? So we had the farmer, we had the consumer, which is who you would normally be looking at, and then we had the chicken. So we had these chicken timelines to see what is the experience of the chicken as it goes through this highly engineered man-made system of you know, growing in 40 days and from egg to plate. And that's where this idea of, um, you know, tongue-in-cheek, I I I wrote a paper at the time called Chicken-Centred Design. But, you know, that's where the idea that you have to have that voice for nature within the brief of any project. (music) 
What advice would you give someone wanting to pursue a career similar to yours? I think the most important thing is you need to understand first and foremost what really drives you. Um, and the reason that's important is if you work, if you can identify what you really care about, if you then work on something that you deeply care about, not only are you going to feel enriched because you're working and dedicating your time and your effort to something that you care about and, and you're going to love doing it because you care about it, it's also going to reinforce the very value that drove you there in the first place. So with this thing of values, the more you practice your values, the deeper they become in, uh, embedded in, you, in yourself. So it's like a self-perpetuating cycle. And it's, it's really good because it's very fulfilling and satisfying to be dedicating your life to things that you care about. Another thing I think is important is there are moments, for me, this was a really big transition. This was me kind of throwing up in the air everything I had been doing. And I had loved my life. You know, I had, I, I loved my, I was living in Italy, which I loved. And I was very good at my job and, you know, was earning a good living from it. And I, I, I shut it all down. And in a way that was quite foolish because, you know, I cut all my ties with everything I had been doing. But I think if I hadn't really made a completely clean sweep, I don't think it would have worked. I think you can't half do something. So you need a little bit of courage and Maybe you need to be a little bit foolhardy as well in order to take that leap. It's a leap of faith. And I think a word of encouragement is, obviously nobody can guarantee that it'll work, but I think if you put your wholehearted passion into something, something will come out of it. Thank you very much, Claire, for these encouraging thoughts and for sharing your experience and insights today. I really enjoyed hearing about your different projects at the intersection of design, sustainability, and circular economy. And your point about the role of values and how to design with values uh, deeply resonated with me. Um, it was lovely to reconnect after all these years. Um, truly enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. That's a pleasure. It's really nice to reconnect with you as well. Thank you for listening to Design Thinking Roundtable. I'd like to thank our sponsor, NYU Tendence Department of Technology Management and Innovation, and our partners, the Design Lab at NYU Makerspace and DFA NYU. If you think this episode could be of interest to someone in your community, share it and don't forget to tag us. Our Twitter handles are DFA NYU and at NYU Makerspace. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.